I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today all the way from the United Kingdom. Amanda Ashey is with me. Amanda, welcome to Look Ma No Hands. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, Amanda, there was no question I was having you on this show after your publicist reached out to me on your behalf, after discovering that I had recently interviewed another one of her clients, Susie Redding. So if you've heard her on this show, she was fantastic talking about mindfulness and self-care, especially during a pandemic. And um, her publicist, sorry, Amanda, I'm just going to start over here for one second. Yeah. I love Susie. I adore Isn't she amazing? Oh, I love her. Yeah. I love her too. I'm so excited for her to find out I'm interviewing you. I'm going to have to send her a message. Okay. Starting off, starting all over again. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by Amanda Ashey from all the way across the pond in London. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I am so happy you're with me today. Your publicist reached out to me a few days ago, and when I was only about halfway through reading her email about you, I knew there was no question that I wanted to have you on this show. I also interviewed one of her clients, Susie Redding. So if you've listened to the show and heard her, she talks about mindfulness and self-care, especially during the pandemic, also from the United Kingdom. I love my UK London guests. I lived mm. there for a year and it's such a huge part of my soul. Um, I'm so happy to have you on here, Amanda. Yes, you're a clinical nutritionist, mindfulness teacher, yoga instructor for children and families. You teach social and emotional well-being in the school system and you work as a consultant supporting schools to develop their well-being curriculum, which we're going to get into your new curriculum, Grounded Little Minds, here on the show. But I want to dial it all the way back to 2017, because this was the part of your publicist emails that stopped me in my tracks when your entire life changed. You got sober, you filed for divorce, you met your current partner in love and business, who is a woman, and you somehow, through all of this, were able to support those children that you have in such a way through all this change. And it sounds like from what I've read about you, this has really inspired the work that you do today and perhaps vice versa. So take us back to 2017. Where were you in your life and what happened that brought you to that point? Um, so yeah, when you, when you sort of put it on a timeline like that, it sounds like something that's really massive and unattainable. But, um, but the truth is, is when we start to tune in to our intuition and tune into our inner knowing, um, that's when everything that seems uncertain and scary and fearful becomes something that we just have to do. And I think for me, um, I had uh, an abusive relationship with alcohol and, um, you know, for decades. And I tried for years, like many of us do, who have uh, an addiction or a dependency on substances to, um, to change my relationship with it. We call it market research. Yes. So <clears throat> we try. I like oh, that. 
Yeah, we try everything. We try everything so we don't have to get sober. Maybe I could just drink beer, maybe just wine on the weekends, <laughs> maybe just clear out, you know, vodka and gin. Um, but, you know, I came to a point where it was dangerous in my life and um, I had no choice. Um, did you find that having was- children, did, did having children accelerate that, that very passionate relationship you had with alcohol? It absolutely did. It okay. yes, um, and we could get into that as well because I there's a lot about the mummy wine culture that I'd love to discuss. On yes, this for sure, we absolutely will. Yeah, and so I, I hit rock bottom as a you know as we say, and um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do because what I'd tried in the past didn't work. So I didn't respond well to AA. Willpower doesn't work because it always eventually runs out. Um, but I knew that I had to just keep taking it day by day. And when you get sober, when you, when you don't have that escape, um, and when, and when you don't have something clouding your reality, you have no choice but to feel everything first of all, um, and then to see everything clear, clearly. And so that's when all of the cracks in my relationship with my ex, who's a wonderful man, and we co-parent our children together beautifully, um, those cracks started to appear uh, and they started to grow. And um, we were both very unhappy and trying to keep this marriage together. And it just came to a point where we very bravely and courageously said, well, okay, this isn't working let's dissolve the marriage, dissolve those elements that don't work and do everything we can to maintain a friendship and continue to be a family just in two homes. And, um, and it was scary and and it was hard. And, um, if I weren't sober, it wouldn't have happened. It would have been even more impossible. It would have been impossible. I mean, I, I would have just stayed in the situation. You know, I would have stayed where I was because when you don't have that clarity, um, all of your problems that seem massive and huge, as soon as you hit the drink are no longer problems anymore. Um, Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, so you, you maintain what you think is happiness or what you think is the way life is meant to be because um, each night you're erasing the problem. Well, I think it's so, I've had more and more people recently who were talking about journeys of recovery, particularly around alcohol on this podcast. And I think there's a reason for that. I'm realizing while I listen to you talking, um, it's not just that I'm completely fascinated with the culture around drinking as it pertains to motherhood, but also that I think this pandemic really served as this sort of like, unwilling sobriety for a lot of people, whether or not they were drinking or stopped drinking or started or whatever. I'm just talking about emotional sobriety. Like everything that we came to rely on that distracts us was just completely taken away. And so Mm -hmm. it caused people to reevaluate their lives, much like the way that I think you're describing. I think Mm -hmm. so many people recently have had those sort of experiences where just like you just described, they could, the cracks grew because there wasn't this anesthetic. There wasn't something to focus on besides the relationship that they were in or their relationship with their children or whatever it was that they were really struggling with. So you 
you talk about how you co-parent now beautifully. You've used that word um, mm -hmm. with your former husband. What do you think it is? Because I, I haven't done a show yet about that, about co-parenting. What do you think it is that enables you both to have that kind of relationship? Because I think so many people who don't end up having the future that they imagined with their spouse, things can be pretty contentious and it can be very challenging to share the most important thing in the world with that person. So what do you think it is that makes it work between both of you? It's very difficult, especially if there's some sort of betrayal involved in the relationship um, or if, if both aren't aligned in how they see the, their future. Um, but I think with us, um, I think how, how it worked with us was I, I was in therapy as well. So um, I did have support and that was profoundly impactful in my life. And I think one person needs to be the mirror and reflect to the other that everything will be okay. Um, if you get to a point in your marriage, oftentimes, not always, where one person uh, is brave enough to say, let's make a change, then there are probably some big problems that have just been overlooked for years. And, um, and so being able to stand in my truth and reflect to my ex, um, his name's Darren, um, that we could move forward and we don't have to buy into the narrative that two happy parent, unhappy parents together is better than two unhappy parents. Sorry. Go if ahead. You don't, if you don't buy into the narrative that two unhappy parents together is better than two happy parents apart, then that gives you so much freedom. Um, you know, we're told that, that if, parents dissolve their marriage, that it increases risk for their children, uh, behavioral risks, all of this, all of this very scary stuff. And um, the, that's just simply not true. If parents are able to maintain a relationship and be happy amongst themselves, that's what the children, they need love and safety. And if both parents can provide that in two homes, then that's better than having uh, a dysfunctional um, uh, relationship in the same family home. So I think that um, knowing, having that knowing that we could make this work gave him the confidence to accept that actually, let me take a, a, a long, hard look at our relationship and evaluate it truthfully. And then once he did that, he, he was able to see that, yeah, you know, we tried, we were together for 17 years. We separated twice. Once we were separated for two years. And for some reason we kept coming back together. Let's dissolve those elements that don't work and focus on what does work. And to do that, you have to be so present in your reality and you have to not be expecting a reaction from your partner. So if, if you're, if you're hurt, and you, you want to say something that's undercut or that might um, generate some sort of reaction from your partner that you want because you need that attention, that's not gonna work. Uh, you, have to, you have to maintain your truth, stay present and empower yourself 
rather than disempower yourself by needing or wanting a reaction because you're in pain. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking it can be applied no matter what stage of life or relationship you are in. The idea of staying present and not expecting a certain type of reaction from your partner. We mm-hmm. hold things. I mean, you don't have to bring up something from the past in an argument to be bringing it up in your own mind, right? To allow somebody to, to be really truly present. I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, what are the tools that you have that help you stay grounded in the present? Um, so that's, that's where um, the tools that I have now in my everyday life is what helps me through my sobriety journey. So um, because AA didn't work for me, I um, found mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. And I was so frightened to enter that yoga world. Like to put on a pair of Lycra and go into a yoga studio was the worst thing I could imagine. Um, But my friend then, Rachel, who's now my life partner, um, she she bought me a pass to a yoga studio and she said, you have, you have to do this. Um, Plus there's nothing like yoga in London. It's the best yoga in the world. Oh, it really is. There are some incredible teachers here. There really are. I still miss it to this day. It's not the same here. If you ever come over, we'll go do some yoga. I would love that. I would love that. So she got you into yoga and that was how you met her. Yes. That was how you um, met her. We met because we, we were working together and we were just friends. You know, it was just like, um, we were kind of really great friends. We shared podcast recommendations. To, you know, we, we liked um, the same type of music, just things like that. And as time went on and, you know, my, my marriage was over, um, I, I started to realize that those friendship feelings had developed into more of a, a crush and um, neither one of us, you know, had any sort of real experience with same sex relationships, but that it just. So you'd never been with a woman before or had you had a crush on a woman before? Was this the first time for both of those things? So I, since my younger years um, and definitely in my twenties had experiences, you know, when you're out at the club or, yes. you know, um, with women. Yes. But she hadn't. And so it was a real shock to both of us how, how this manifested and and developed and and how we ended up in a long-term committed relationship. But um, what is that moment like when you're like with a friend and then you realize, wait a second, I think this could be more than just a friendship. Is it, was it a totally mutual moment of just, wow. I mean, take us there. It, it, it happened so gradually that it, in hindsight, I could, I could sort of say, oh, well, obviously those feelings were developing. Um, but it was such a gradual thing. And when I finally realized, I think it was because um, she was going on a date with a guy and I started to feel these things. And, and I thought, Mm-mm, this mm. can't happen. You were like, wait, I, I don't like that. Or I want to <laughs> be going on a date with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, and so I, I kind of told her and, um, and she was like, mm, God, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to think about this. I'm meant to be, I'm meant to be your support. I'm meant to be uh, your rock. I don't know if I could dive in. 
And, uh, but, you know, some people like to say love is a choice, but love is absolutely not a choice. It's, it's oh, a primal feeling. That and is so true. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And you can't, if it, if you, you might be able to choose to love someone, or, but you certainly can't choose to not love someone. Oh, so, yeah. You're so right. And our narrative around that, I think about my time dating up until when I met my husband, our narrative is very like based in sort of control of oneself around those types of choices as though they are choices and they aren't. And I understand why we've gotten to that point because, you know, when you're talking about being in a relationship with an addict or maybe somebody who is out of control and not good for you emotionally, there are, there's, there's a lot of room and reason for that type of language, mm-hmm. but outside of those circumstances, it really isn't a choice. I've, I no one has ever said that on the show before, but that's very true. That's very yeah, true. Yeah, it's it's not. I think it may be. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it might have something to do with you know a religious sort of thing as well. You know, in the institutionalized religion, maybe they like to um, explain that you you ha- you choose to stay with your partner, you choose to love your partner, um, right. and but you know it's love. It it it's a drive just like hunger, just like thirst. And it's, it's primal and you can't choose it. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's how we ended up where we are now is that we had no choice. (laughs) You had no Um, choice. It had to happen. And then I, I mean, I know for me, I think, you know, in, when you're in your marriage or in your relationship, you have really challenging times and you're going to make a choice to, be committed. Maybe that's like a better way of saying it. Like you, you choose to stay, you choose to stay committed even when things feel challenging. Um, but I, I think you're right on the money about like love being this thing that really come is like thrusted upon you. It's not something that you just grab or decide out of thin air. No. Yeah. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. I love it. I love it. I'm so grateful to have yet another person on this show talk candidly about their relationship with alcohol. I've interviewed Claire Pooley. You might know her. She's another UK mama and author of The Sober Diaries. Um, I've also interviewed Zoe Blasky, who's the founder of the Mother Kind podcast, who openly shares that she abstains from drinking. And I also have my own journey around alcohol, which I've shared about somewhat candidly here and very candidly on my friend Julie Lauren's podcast recently called Hashtag No Filter. I think I was really brought to a turning point because of the wine culture that exists among mothers. And you talk about that in the work that you do. You help moms who struggle with dependency and who get stuck in mommy wine culture. What do you think it is about mothers? Because I'm very fascinated by this that we've created such a culture around alcohol and wine specifically? Well, you know, women and alcohol wasn't even really a thing even two decades ago. So it's steadily been growing. And we know that everything is done through clever marketing. Um, So uh, I think that it was marketed towards women more, first of all, and also we, we came to a place where women and men were seemingly living the same lives. We were educated. We had social circles. We were travel, well-traveled. Um, we had careers. And so all of that opens up a world to this very socially acceptable um, way of life, which is to include alcohol and everything. And so I think that because of that, and because how it was marketed more towards women, it became some 
something more of an everyday thing in our lives. What I found so fascinating as I've done much of my market research and reading about what alcohol actually does to us is that, yes, it gives us that feeling initially that it takes the edge off. It takes off of, it, it gives us, it takes the edge off of our anxiety, but really it creates much more anxiety when we wake up the next day. And it makes us believe that the only thing that we can do to get rid of that anxiety is to drink more. And so we're drinking to medicate this anxiety that's created by what we're drinking. It's very easy in my experience to lose track of that being what's really going on. It feels like life is really challenging. And so I'm going to take the edge off it, off of it with this glass of wine, but it's actually the glass of wine or three of them every night that's making things more difficult. That's making me need that alcohol in the first place. And I think getting perspective on that is next to impossible. You're also absolutely right about that cycle and um, you know what alcohol or, or any sort of distraction does is that it, it, what it's only trying to do is it's just trying to create a balance, right? So we create these chemicals in our body, our chemical messengers, our, our feel-good hormones naturally. And if we are experiencing any sort of trauma, which as we know, that journey from maiden to mother is very traumatic. It's like hitting a brick wall. We just don't talk about it. No, we don't. Um, we're dealing with that, especially now in this modern world where we don't have that tight circle of support that we might have had three, four decades ago. We are handling this trauma by escaping it. And yes. that's what all of these dependencies do for us, whether it's your phone or Netflix or shopping or... Um, it's everywhere. Gossiping, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, when you help women with dependency um, of any kind, what is it? Where do you start with someone who comes to you and says, hey, I'm struggling? So we first have to start and see where the trauma is coming from. You know, and oftentimes it, it really does go back to childhood. And, um, and there's always anyone who has this dangerous dependency or addiction to any sort of substance oftentimes has experienced some sort of childhood trauma uh, that wired their neural pathways in a certain way that made them need to seek happiness or seek safety through something else. Um, and the work that I do, you know, oftentimes if I'm working with someone, a woman who is struggling with dependency, they will be seeing some sort of therapist as well. So the work that I do is more giving them the tools because we're using the alcohol as a coping mechanism. So I'm giving them the tools to um, use to stay present and to bring calm into their body, to be able to feel their feelings and understand what those thoughts are that come from the feelings and to work through it all. And the tools are mindfulness, meditation, nutrition, and movement. And you say that those are the tools that helped you, but that AA did not work for you. And, and I've heard actually a lot of women have written about that recently. What was it specifically about AA? Because I think, you know, if anybody is listening to this and thinking I identify, like that's the first thing you think, okay, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. But more recently, people have been talking about that, not necessarily being the only, only thing, the only tool that works. What was it, if you don't mind sharing that about AA that didn't really work for you? I didn't like the whole idea of being powerless. I wanted to have control. I wanted to, you know, that they, they, in AA, they say, 
just get the, get your head on the pillow without taking a drink, you know, but I, I didn't want to live my life every day getting through my day without taking a drink. I wanted to live my life thriving and get it to a point where I didn't even want that in my life. I, I didn't need that in my life because I was maintaining my own happiness, my own joy, my own peace and my own calm. And I think that the work that Gabor Mate does and um, Johan Hari and um, they're, you know, they talk a lot about how this trauma is basically what leads you down the path of substance abuse or any sort of dependency. And I think it's Johan Hari who says that sub the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's connection. It's connection. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's my favorite. That was like life changing. That was a TED talk where he shared that, right? Or Yeah. And I when mean, I heard that. that, yeah, I just, I started crying because it resonated so strongly. And so, um, and so that's when I knew I had to connect to myself. And as soon as I started connecting to myself through mindfulness, meditation, and yoga, that strengthened all of my relationships and connections outside of me. And again, that was one of the, um, one of the things that helped me stand in my truth and reflect to my ex how we needed to move forward because I had that connection, I had that inner knowing, and um, I had that clarity and that stability and that strength. Well, it also sounds to me like kind of getting in your body, as they say, and listening to your, like, I think yoga for me was just instrumental um, in, in connecting me with my own intuition, because so much of what we know to be true, we actually feel in our bones, literally, as they say, we feel it in our bones and our body. That was a huge thing for me. I've talked openly on here on several episodes about how I um, went to Al-Anon for many, many years, which is like the sister fellowship to AA um, for family and friends of alcoholics. There's a lot of alcoholism in my family. And like you, it, it certainly wasn't the only, it was not the only tool that I used. I was very immersed in a journey, in a yoga and, and meditation journey. And um, yoga was so helpful to me in just helping me know how I felt about very basic things, connecting me. I almost felt like I kind of was floating above myself for a very, very long time. And it reintegrated me into my own body. I think a lot of people with trauma, they leave their bodies. Um, it's easier not to be there. That's how it feels. So when we reconnect, um, that can just be such an incredible tool for you, you know, you talk about 2017, like it was a hundred years ago. It was actually just three years ago, but it sounds like, it sounds like you just kind of knew once you started reconnecting to yourself, exactly what you wanted and what you needed to do next. Yeah. Because it's there, isn't it? Like you said, that there. intuition it's, it's there, it's speaking to you. We just can't hear it when we continue to drown it out. And yeah, yoga, you know, that's the, it connects you to your mind and your body through your breath and through movement. And it's very rare to have, you know, 60 to 90 minutes where you think about nothing other than how you're moving your body and, and how your breath is flowing. Oh yeah. I miss and, it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And when you do that, it's like that intuition, which I like to think of intuition as magic. It, it's like when your thoughts are um, quiet 
because they're never completely gone, are they? They're, but, they're, but they can get really quiet and you can be so in the present moment, um, that intuition, that magic just comes in. It's like drops something in you and, um, or it comes out of your bones and then it's there. And all of a sudden, you know, and you, you don't know. know how it happened. You didn't necessarily sit down to think about what you need. It's just there. And you know, you know, I, I love it. I love it. And you start to, I feel like you live your life almost on a different plane because, you know, I think we're, we're used to wanting to have facts in this society or evidence or reason, but there's something really beautiful that's beyond that. And living there and knowing, knowing what you know is a wonderful way to move forward and take these beautiful actions in your life. So like so many other mothers who go through anything that's even remotely traumatizing while they have children in tow, you talk about wanting to prioritize their mental health and, you know, their sanity essentially during the time that you were getting divorced and that helped that being such a big part of your journey and what you do today. So talk to me about how you helped your children navigate this time and how you essentially help other children connect to their emotional or understand their emotional literacy as well? So a child's brain, um, well, a brain, it, it grows back to front and it's the front part of our brain that is the rational thinking mind that helps us to make choices, focus and concentrate and, and do our best. So that part of our brain, which is our prefrontal cortex, doesn't really fully develop until our early 20s. So children, they live in their limbic system and they're like little limbic sponges. So they are going to experience their emotions fully. And that's what they're meant to do. And for them so to- They're having big feelings and having what we like to call a tantrum. They're actually doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Exactly. And their environment will dictate how big those emotions become. Mm, and, okay. you know, I was thinking the other day, I was, I was in traffic and I was trying to parallel park and this car was getting so frustrated with me. And he was like honking his horn and he was like, you know, giving me the finger <laughs> and, it, and it was making me react and it was making me not want to help him because he wanted to get past me. And yeah. all I had to do was move forward a bit so he could get past me. And I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't want to move forward because you're being so horrible to me. But yes, then of course. Man across the street, he looked at me and he said, you're all right, darling. And he said, just come up a bit. And so oh. his calmness and his kindness calmed me. And that's sort of like how, um, if you imagine the parent and the child, if the child is having a reaction and the parent is is and it's hard right because we we're tested all day long parents we're mm -hmm. negotiating we're mediating we're, yep. we're doing our best and no jokes yes um but if the if the parent then jumps in and joins that child to and reacts like the man in the truck was doing yeah then the child's going to want to do exactly the opposite of what they, what the parent wants them to do, which is to calm down, to think rationally, and um, and to to basically stop, 
stop crying, you know? Yes, right. Exactly. Well, Dr. I, had, I recently had Dr. Becky Bailey on the show. She's the founder of Conscious Discipline. And she talked to me extensively about how we cannot teach a child to do what we don't know how to do ourselves or what we are not embodying in that moment. So if we run into the pantry every night during dinner and eat 12 chocolates while our kid is eating we're trying to get our kid to eat broccoli and carrots and whatever else we put on their plate. We can't possibly have whatever we need within us to explain to our children that they can't have 12 chocolates for dinner either. And while it might not make, make total sense um, in a situation like what you just illustrated, where our kid is just getting really angry because of a situation outside of their control, um, when we meet them with, you know, yes, you know, if you're afraid there's a monster under your bed, yes, there is a monster under your bed. You should be very afraid. They're going to get more and more afraid. But if we're the calm voice that tells them not to worry, there's not a monster or like that man came up to you and said, just pull up your car a little bit calmly. Um, they reflect that. It's so hard. It's so counterintuitive mm -hmm. as a parent because we're doing a hundred million things at once oftentimes to take that time to regulate ourselves. But mm -hmm. it really is the only way. I've tried a lot of other ones. Um, it's true. And mm -hmm. I love that you've taken that journey of understanding that and turned it into your new curriculum, which is your Grounded Little Minds curriculum. Tell us more about Grounded Little Minds and what you teach children through your program. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to teach children is that they have a thinking brain. They have a thinking mind. And, um, and so we cover all of the parts of the brain that we work with in mindfulness. Um, so they learn that it's their amygdala that sends them into fight, flight, or freeze. And even when a parent says no, that is seen as a threat, you know, because our, amyg our amygdala is triggered. It's a survival Yes. part of our brain that puts us into fight, flight, freeze, even a parent saying no can trigger that, that, um, that threat, that survival instinct. And so we learn to recognize, we, first of all, you have to notice how you're feeling and know where you're feeling it in your body and then make a choice to make a change. And, and you do that by coming into your body. So um, in grounded little minds, there's seven lessons, seven modules, and they're about 10 to 50, you know, 10 to 20 minutes each. So the children can really maintain maximum focus and concentration. And we start off by learning about the brain and the mind. And then we go into the breath because the breath is our anchor. It's always with us. It anchors us into the present moment. And then there are two lessons where we, um, we build a calm corner. So we, um, we create, four different sensory items that we can put in our calm corner. So um, a mindfulness meditation bottle, um, what I call a lavender sock and, oh. uh, and a couple, a couple of other things. And then they have their safe space that they can retreat to, to help them find that calm when it's all too much. Um, we talk about our thoughts and feelings. We talk about gratitude, positive affirmations, all of these tools that they can then start to access when they're feeling their big emotions. But first of all, they need to understand what their emotions are, why they experience them, and that it's okay to experience them. But if they stick around for too long, you know, if, if that wobble that you're having won't go away, we, can, we have tools to help us pass those emotions pass them along. Well, I think about it as an adult, I understand what flight fighter freeze mode is. I've taught, we've talked about it extensively. I feel like in the last few months around this pandemic, especially, um, 
I know, I understand my amygdala. I understand what makes me feel certain emotions. I know what triggers me. There are plenty of adults who don't necessarily even understand that. What I think about having that understanding as a child, and that feels like invaluable. How old, what's the, what, what's the youngest child that you teach in Grounded Little Minds? Is it seven? Is that... Yes. So for Grounded Little Minds, it's really designed for seven to 11 year olds. Um, But I think, you know, six and five year olds, if parents are, and that's the intention is that parents, especially with the younger ones might sit and do it with them because it really is a family practice. Um, But yeah, uh, if, if, because I teach in the schools Mm -hmm. and I see how the children in when I'm teaching in a school, they, they absorb it so quickly. And especially by the time they're 10, 11 years old. Um, and then I just want them to be able to go home and for that to be nurtured as, as it might be in the school. And so, so yeah, let's start with that. I mean, as it, cause you're a parent as well. And as, as parents, how can we nurture and maintain what you teach in ground little minds in our homes every day? So I designed the lessons so I don't use any sort of like magical puppets or silly voices or anything like that because I wanted the lessons to have longevity and for parents to be able to listen in and and pick up on tips for them as well. Um, So with the parenting journey and how we can use what what I teach in Grounded Little Minds it's all about notice. It's all about coming into the present moment, coming into your body and noticing how you're feeling and, and pausing for even if it's just that one moment so you don't react and you can respond with a bit more meaning because it's, it's the amygdala that makes us react. We don't think we just react. But that pause, you know, when we notice in that pause, allows us to start traveling up to the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, where we can make choices. Parents are able to learn all about, you know, the brain, the neuroscience, about the breath, about coming into the present moment, and about how, you know, our thoughts and feelings are connected. So if we're feeling something, it's going to create thoughts. Those thoughts are going to then create feelings, and it's a cycle. And it's, it's noticing that, interrupting the pattern and making a different choice. You talk a lot about gratitude and teaching children the power of gratitude in your curriculum. What does that look like, teaching a young child about gratitude? So um, it's, it's a really simple practice that I use. And, and I bring in Maya Angelou, who we all know and love. Um, she's, you know, civil civil rights activist and American poet. She's beautiful words that she's created. And I use a poem of hers. And, um, and so we kind of go through that and everything has a creative activity. So they learn through creativity and they learn through um, play, you know, and, um, and we talk about this poem and then we, we draw it out and then we talk about feelings and we, we talk about, things that others have said or done that make us feel good. And so that's, that sort of introduces gratitude because when we notice the good around us, that's when we can appreciate it. When we notice how others do or say things that make us feel good, then that makes us appreciate it. And, um, 
And so that it's through that, that we start to introduce this word gratitude. So it's acknowledging what makes us feel joyful inside. Not- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the foundations of mindfulness. It, it's not just bringing calm into your body, but it's noticing the good around us because we do have a tendency as humans to focus on the more negative side of things. Well, I think that's so powerful, especially right now. Um, we've talked virtually endlessly on the show about nav- navigating the pandemic, especially with young children. But what I haven't seen yet is an actual program that's developed to help them understand their own emotions and hone their superpower, as you call it. That's their emotional literacy and the power of their minds, especially as they relate to the pandemic. So as we look at this very specific situation, there are kids having probably pretty specific struggles. I imagine going out into the world after being locked down for so long can be very anxiety inducing. I get messages from parents all the time about specific situations they're in as a result of the pandemic that are causing distress to their children and they want to know how do I how do I help? How do I help my child through this? What are the most common issues you're seeing our children struggle with around COVID-19? And how are you helping parents help their children with those, those issues that come up? I think, I think that what children experience is really the same thing As that adults experience. experience. You know, yeah. they're, they're just tiny versions of us. And the, the, but they also see us and mirror us. So um, that's the difference. They, they might not be able to put into words that they miss their friends. And so they might show you in a different way, or they might not be able to put into words that they're scared, but they'll show you in a different way. Um, and I think that when they, we, so we've gone back to school, we're back in school here and um, working with this um, young girl who I think the buildup of the anxiety over lockdown came with her to school and she gets triggered when she has to do a timed math test. And Mm. that's when the anxiety rushes in and that's when the panic comes in. And so it's kind of like it's programmed into our young children without them even knowing it because especially the, the young, young ones um, when, when they're zero to seven, you know, that that's when, everything is kind of being absorbed into the subconscious and and kind of programmed as a blueprint for them to access later in life. Um, So what we do is with this young girl, for example, I'm doing a lot of work around positive affirmations and um, breath work because sometimes just coming to the breath isn't enough. Sometimes we need the breath affirmations and gratitude um, to help bring Um, that calm back into the body and slow the heart rate down. And as soon as the heart starts to slow down, it'll send messages to the brain that everything is okay. And then we can start to access our rational mind. Um, So it's, it's really simple stuff. You know, it's, it's all about using the tools, these evidence-based mindfulness tools that children latch onto so easily uh, to bring them into the present moment so they can let go of those thoughts that are created by those feelings that they don't even know they have and, um, and refocus their attention. I love that you said the thoughts that are created by their feelings. Dr. Becky Bailey talked to me on, the, on a recent podcast episode about how when we shut down children's emotions, when we tell them to stop 
crying or to stop feeling whatever they feel or when we shame them for their feelings, they go right into their head and their thinking mind activates and that's when the stories start. And that it's, that, that, that's what happens with adult. I mean, that's what we all do as human beings. And just to know that, even just hearing her say that and understanding that that's, what happening, that's what's happening to my child and how much time I've spent there as an adult and how hard it is to get out of our heads and back into our bodies has really helped me as a parent just to understand how important it is to let her have the emotions that she's having. And then I think, you know, you're taking it to the next degree, which is giving them tools to process them. I think we hear a lot as modern parents about letting our children feel what they feel, but knowing how to help them navigate those emotions. I don't think we were, I know I wasn't taught how to navigate my emotions. So most of us weren't given that information as children. And so to teach it to our kids, it's, it's teaching what you don't know. And I love that you have these really concrete tools. I had this big smile on my face listening to you talk about being with this child while she was struggling with a timed math test, because I just think about how wonderful that would be to have more people like you in schools, especially over here, um, letting, helping children process how they feel. I mean, that should be the most basic thing that we try to teach children, but we don't, we don't consider that because that wasn't something we learned either. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it, we didn't learn it, so we don't know how to do it, but it's now um, something that people are talking about more and we can, it, it's not difficult. You know, it, it's actually the hardest thing to do is to make a choice to do it. Right. Once, once you start to do it, you, you start to experience the rewards. And once you experience those rewards, it's those natural feel good chemicals in your body that makes you want to come back for more. But it's also like going to the gym, you know, as soon as you stop going to the gym for a week, you have to motivate yourself to get back. Same thing with training our mind. That's, that's what we're doing with mindfulness and meditation is we're, we're training our mind so we can change our brain. And any sort of training takes practice. It takes dedication. It takes willingness to show up and make the choice to do it. And that's really the biggest step to overcome. The actual practice is so fulfilling and rewarding itself. Um, it's just not allowing your mind to get in your way and tell you not to do it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So much of what you teach in your Grounded Little Minds um, curriculum is also based off of your own experience. I, I imagine having been with a man and now being with a woman, you have more of an insight into how children respond to differences in sexual identity and race and gender, et cetera. So give us a little bit of insight here on how you help children learn about being inclusive such an important topic right now, especially. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, here in the UK, um, as of September 2020, having a well-being curriculum in schools ha was, has been compulsory. So schools have had to bring some sort of well-being curriculum into Yeah, you school. guys are like way ahead of us. I mean, I'm just like <laughs> even listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, I guess we could move there, you know, but um, <laughs> it's just like unbelievable. I hope I have some American, you know, administrators listening to this show right now. Go ahead. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so it's based on um, sort of national guidelines, which is called PSAD, which is um, physical, social, um, health, health and emotional, right. 
And so part of that is inclusivity, diversity, and equality. So you have these guidelines and then what, um, what I, what I've done is I've kind of taken these guidelines in using mindfulness, um, techniques, evidence-based mindful mindfulness te techniques. I've written some lessons around it. So we talk about the equality act of 2010 and, um, but in doing that, we, we also bring in mindfulness techniques. So, you know, it's good to understand that everyone's different and that just because someone looks or thinks differently to you, it doesn't make them right or wrong because we, we learn through mindfulness that our thoughts and our opinions aren't right or wrong. And we learn that through activities. We play games, we role play. Um, so they're really absorbing this information viscerally. And that's when the learning happens. It's, it's not just an intellectual uh, ex explanation. It's a visceral experience. It's true that children, young children don't, in, do they have any inherent bias? How, I've always wondered about this. I actually don't know the answer. Do they have inherent racial or gender bias? Gender bias, probably. So. No, I mean, like, I know my kid likes girls a lot more than boys because she is a girl, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I don't think we have any other type of bias based off of who someone chooses to marry or anything like that. I don't think so. I think that what children do is um, they like to um, <clears throat> imitate what they see as themselves. Um, so I think that if anything, that's that probably why girls like to play with girls because they see themselves in them in a way um so but uh, as far as biases i i haven't come across any that have any sort of biases against gen gender like biases that are damaging against gender or race or anything yeah. like that well it's i mean it shows us that those things are really taught <laughs> to to us um and you're teaching them the opposite, which is wonderful. It's so wonderful. So um, the Grounded Little Minds curriculum, if I'm correct, it's it's for teachers to teach to their students. Um, I'm actually asking this like off the record, so I know how to frame this next question. Um, oh, okay. it, is, it, is it for, it's for teachers to teach to their students or can parents also purchase it and like use it in their homes? No, it's actually, it's for parents. It's for families. Yeah. It's for so, families. Okay. It's for yeah. families. So my next question for you will just be about the logistics of how to acquire it and okay okay so um for anyone listening who's interested in acquiring the grounded little minds curriculum it is for parents to teach to their children at home you get to watch amanda on video teaching these modules which just sounds so soothing having listened to you for almost an hour here on this podcast how do we acquire the grounded little minds curriculum it's super easy. So um, I'm hosting it on Mastermind, which is, I don't know if you know who Anthony Robbins is, Tony Robbins. Yes. It's his new online um, platform. So um, all of the videos are on there. You just go to Mastermind or you could go to my website actually, and you can read all of the information. You click, it takes you to the platform where the co course is hosted and you'll have access to the course. You, it's flexible. You can do it in your own time. You can track your learning. You can submit comments and feedback. There's um, a digital, a really colorful digital workbook that it's um, 17 pages that you can download. It has um, all of the key terms and the, le the learning outcomes. Um, 
more fun, mindful activities for the children and all of the affirmation cards that we use in each lesson that they can cut out and save. Fantastic. Well, I will put the link to your website so people can learn more about you and also the link to the Ground a Little Minds course in the show notes. If anyone is interested, I know I'm certainly going to be acquiring it and sharing it with my children when they're old enough. My oldest is about four and a half, but there's so much, you know, first of all, time flies. But secondly, there's so much about what you talk about that you don't necessarily have to be seven just to to start incorporating, you know, the calm space and helping children just understand why they feel what they feel. Um, I think, you know, the earlier, the better, right? Absolutely. And, you know, during lockdown, I taught online lessons similar to what I teach here on this course. And two of my, two of my little students that showed up day week after week were um, three and four. And so, you know, her, her mom is a yoga teacher and she loves the singing bowl and they'd show up and they'd just absorb it. It's planting seeds. It's planting seeds. It truly is. I love it. It was such an honor to have you on the show. Amanda, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And you've been listening to Amanda Ashy. I will again leave her website in the show notes for you. And I am Laura Max Rose, your host of Look Ma No Hands. Thank you for joining me. And I look forward to being with you again next Monday. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mom,